All right, good to have you here tonight, and let's go ahead and take our Bibles, and uh, we'll turn over to the book of Proverbs, and again, we're going to be looking at some thoughts from the Proverbs, especially one main thought here tonight, and so we're going to go ahead and read through a few verses that I'm not going to really cover here tonight, and uh, certainly, again, uh, could talk about maybe more detail sometime, um, but again, we're just going to try to get into one subject here tonight. We're really not even going to talk about what we talked about last week, because I do want to um, finish, hopefully, in, in a somewhat timely manner here tonight. Uh, again, the subject we're going to be looking at tonight is a subject that uh, many of us have struggled with and maybe do struggle with. I'm not saying you do. I just know that I do. Uh, the subject that we'll talk about here tonight is found here in Proverbs chapter 18. And so we're going to go ahead and read the first nine verses of the chapter, and then we're going to zero in on verse number nine here tonight as we consider the scope of slothfulness, the scope of slothfulness. Proverbs chapter 18, verse number one, through desire, a man having separated himself, seeketh and intermenteleth with all wisdom. A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. When the wicked cometh, then cometh also contempt and with ignominy reproach. The words of a man's mouth are as deep waters, and the wellspring of wisdom as a flowing brook. It is not good to accept the person of the wicked, to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down to the innermost parts of the belly. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. This evening I want to talk to you about the subject of slothfulness, the scope of slothfulness. The Bible says in verse number 9, it says, He that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Let's go ahead and pray together as we consider this thought here tonight. Father, thank you, Lord, again for your word here tonight. I pray that you again help us to cover uh, in degree this subject of slothfulness or laziness. Help us again to see as, as it is a sin, something that takes away from maybe what we could do or the potential that's found in every human person. Again, to bless this time as we meet here tonight. Help the Word of God to be a challenge and a blessing to hear. Help us to understand what slothfulness entails. Father, help us to avoid it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as we talk about a subject dealing with our common faults, that of being slothful, I don't think anybody would say that they were born without any semblance of slothfulness. It is something that is a common fault, just like we would say in a lot of people's lives, that of gluttony or overeating. Again, I'm not going to talk about gluttony or overeating, but it's a common fault. People overeat, and they overeat, and, I, and it's not good for them. It's not good for me. It's not good for anyone. Again, as we talk about this subject of slothfulness, it's a common fault that's overlooked. It's a common fault that parents and, uh, and teachers often find in uh, students and young people, certainly not just in them, but also in old people. Uh, again, it's, again, when we talk about slothfulness, it is, it is about poor character that we're talking about. It's about, again about the misuse or abuse of one's potential. As we look at slothfulness here tonight, we see in 
Verse number nine, it says something about slothfulness, and it says something I believe, again, just want to talk on here briefly to begin with. It says, he also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. And so if we're slothful in our work, we're connected with wasters. We're connected with wasters. You know, I think about the time I've spent in my life at different times in my life before I was saved, certainly a lot, maybe not as much now as I've been saved, in uh, being somewhat slothful or being very slothful. You know, I'm not going to go into my past in detail, but I do want to say this. I was born a slothful person. You say, you were born a slothful person? (laughs) I was born a slothful person. I like to be lazy. I like not to do much. I liked to avoid work. Again, I wanted to do things that were fun. I'm not saying that's just kids or whatever, but I think about how slothful I could be. At times, I would hide from work. I mean, I I would hide from work. I knew there was work to be done, and I would hide from work. You know, people, sometimes you see that again in a workplace, and it bothers the diligent when they're working at a workplace. Again, I think about, again, some of my family that's worked in different workplaces. I mean, especially my brother in Alaska. One of his often mentioned things he talks about is, is people just they are plainly not willing or wanting to work and how it bothers him and how he works hard. And he's not even a Christian. And he, he works diligently at work. Like there's so many pallets to be put away. And he'll put away pallet after pallet after pallet. And he can put, you know, 11, 12 pallets away of stuff in a, in a given night. And yet, some of these people have a hard time, he says, you know, with half a pallet of stuff to put away. And they may get paid, you know, a few dollars less than him or whatever it might be. And how it bothers him is he sees these people half work or in his, in his words, maybe they hardly work at all. You know, a slothful person will seek to avoid work. They will hide from work. They will look for excuses not to work. They will bail when it comes to doing anything that entails difficult work. You know, I think about what could happen this year as far as a flood comes. We may have a flood again like we had in 2009 or similar to that. I'm not saying we're going to. I'm not a prophet. I don't know how the snow melt's going to go etc. But I've heard that we have more snow as far as, uh, again, snow melt on the ground right now. I heard that today than we've had any time in the past as far as a snowpack. They call it a snowpack. How much, how much snow we have on the ground in this region and north of us. We get a lot of snow and melt from uh, Devil's Lake and up in that area. So we could have a flood this year. And I think about, you know, what could happen as a result of that? You know, there may be that we'll, we'll have to do some diking. We may have to do some volunteer work. We may have to help someone maybe who uh, goes through some flooding situations. This could happen uh, in, in our region. We could think about, again, others that, 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 that may be going through some difficulties when it comes to different things they can accomplish. And, and uh, we sometimes wonder, should I help them or, or what should I do? You know, we all have common faults, and I think about one of the faults I have, and again, it's one I fought against as, as a Christian, uh, is that of being lazy and, 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 and being, again, uh, slothful. 
You know, it's easy to be slothful. I could sit and watch TV probably 24 hours a day. I couldn't probably as a Christian now, maybe, but I mean, I could in the past. I could sit, watch TV 24 hours a day. Uh, someone could say, could you play video games all day? Could you make a combination of video games and, and, and maybe watching TV and then maybe looking on the phone for maybe things and looking at different things and learning different things? I mean, we could, we could all spend a lot of time, again, in what I would call uh, useless kinds of things. We all have common faults. Laziness being one of them, lying being another one, stubbornness, another one, uh, disorderliness, another one, apathy, another one, harshness, another one. Again, impatience, disrespect, self-pity, pride, tardiness, wastefulness, weakness, self-centeredness, fearfulness, covetousness, inconsistency. We all have faults and things we struggle with. But as we consider here tonight, one of the common themes of Proverbs is that of dealing with the subject of slothfulness. What is slothfulness? Certainly not a word you hear very much today. But in the 1828 dictionary, it defines it as a, discon a disinclination to action or labor. It's a disinclination to action or labor. In other words, you don't like action, you don't want to labor. Or I don't want to do action, or I don't want to do labor. It's to be idle and not in use. It goes on and talks about it being uh, also dealing with sluggishness, tardiness, idleness. America, I believe, is sadly encouraging more and more to be sluggish, slothful, and lazy. You know, we never thought anything of a farmer from working from sunup till sundown. Never thought anything about that. We never talked to a farmer that worked from sunup till sundown and the wife or someone else would bring some food maybe out at three o'clock in the afternoon and, and maybe they'd come back at lunchtime or maybe they'd skip lunch or whatever it might be, but they would they work from sunup till sundown. And then they'd Go to church on Sunday. They took time usually for church on Sunday. That was a normal course of a work week. More and more people want to see, you know, a decrease in work hours. Why not make full-time labor like that of Europe? 32 hours a week. 32 hours a week. I'm not saying 32 hours a week makes, again, a work week small, but it makes it shorter than it was in the past. Hebrews chapter 6, we need to be careful as Christians that we, we're not slothful. I'm not saying again that someone here tonight is slothful. I'm saying that you and I can be prone to being slothful uh, towards inaction, towards not wanting to labor, towards being idle, towards being sluggish. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 12, it says, Be not be ye not slothful, but flowers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It says here, be not slothful. I want to back up there, verse number 10, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have showed towards his name, and that you minister to the saints and do minister 
And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence through the full assurance of hope unto the end. And so here it talks about us ministering or doing work or ministry and how that's a good thing. And it says there in verse number 12, it commands us not to be slothful, that you be not slothful, but followers of them through faith and patience inherit the promises. Americans shouldn't be a slothful people. No one in general should be slothful. To be slothful is to be sinful. And so I want to consider some things about this thing of slothfulness tonight. First of all, I would like to look at the characteristics of the slothful. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26. Again, the book of Proverbs talks a lot on this subject, and so a lot of the verses here tonight was center here from the book of Proverbs. I'm, I'm just going to say here tonight as we talk about, first of all, one of the marks of those that are slothful is they love to sleep too much. They love to sleep too much. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleep. We all need sleep. I mean, I looked at today at some of the statistics on sleep, and, and I've heard these statistics before in general when it comes to sleep, but uh, those 6 to 13 years old should get 9 to 11 hours of sleep every day. So, Joey, you're still 11. So you get uh, how many hours of sleep? Oh, you don't have to answer that. 9 to 11 hours of sleep. Now, we have a number of teenagers here, okay? You're a teenager, you're 13 to 18 years old. How many hours of sleep should you be sleeping at night? Well, in general, they say a teenager needs 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And so I'm not saying there's people that are going to sleep less and there's some people that are going to sleep more. I get that. And it goes on and talks about, again, in some of these surveys, that adults sleep seven to nine hours. When you get old and gray, uh, again, usually 65 and older, you even sleep less. You live, sleep seven to eight hours or whatever it might be. But these are some normal, uh, general hours of sleeping, sleeping uh, these many hours. Now, if you're an adult and you're sleeping nine to 11 hours, you're probably sleeping too much. Now, there could be some problems that you're dealing with. You could be sleeping, you have sleep apnea. And uh, maybe you're sleeping more because you're not really sleeping like you should. You're not getting your REM sleep and all that sort of thing. But again, as it describes a slothful, it, 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 tell, it talks about and shows them to be people that like to sleep. Uh, Proverbs 26, verse number 14. Uh, Proverbs 26, verse 14. The Bible says, as the door turneth upon its hinges, so does the slothful upon his bed. You know, there's a door back there that has hinges on it. You don't have doors that don't have hinges in general. You know, I mean, there's sliding doors and stuff like that too today. But like a door has hinges, so is a slothful person upon his bed. They just go hand in hand. A lot of sleep, a lot of slumber with, uh, again, those that sleep and sleep too much. Proverbs chapter 20, let's turn there. Proverbs 20, when it comes to sleep, there are people that are wired different. And I'll say that here today. There are people that probably got to sleep more. And if, you, if you're sleeping, you're still tired after you're sleeping, uh, again, normally then you might need to sleep some more. But there are a lot of people that don't sleep enough too. And again, that's not good either. But uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 13, the Bible says, love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty Open thine eyes, and thou shalt be satisfied with bed. And so get out of the bed, go to work, go to school, go do whatever you need to do. And it mentions here, love not sleep. 
For the slugger, he's like someone that's hinged to his bed. He's, in a sense, hinged to his bed. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26, verse number 14. Again, I'm not here to tear anybody down. I'm not here to, again, uh, wound anybody or anything along that lines or whatever it might be, but I'm just saying the average person needs seven to nine hours of sleep when they reach adulthood. Yet 35% of Americans live on less than seven hours of sleep, and that's not necessarily good. You know what they live on? They live on lack of sleep, and they live on coffee or some caffeine of some kind. And that's not necessarily good because that can lead to a number of different other things, obesity and a lot of different other things, obesity, sometimes diabetes, all these kind of things. You can look at things that uh, are, are problems for people that sleep too little, and there's problems for those that sleep too much. And so the Bible says, love not sleep. Back in Proverbs chapter 6, uh, again, we looked at this verse here a while back when we were back there in the beginning of Proverbs, but it deals with the subject of sleep here once again, and the sluggard in Proverbs 6, in verse number 9, it says, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding thy hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and they want as an armed man. Too much sleep. There's variations in sleep. And some people, it seems, are wired to sleep less. I'll give you some famous names of people who don't sleep much. Condoleezza Rice. She gets up at 5 a.m. in the morning. She exercises and she sleeps very little. The head of Yahoo, the CEO, sleeps four to six hours a day. Yet once a month, she takes a vacation of one week. I'd love to be able to do that, but not. But, uh, and does so. Jack Dorsey, you've heard of him before. The old head of Twitter, four to six hours of sleep. Of course, you hear of Donald Trump. You know how much he sleeps? Three to four hours a night. It's all he sleeps. Jake Leno, five hours of sleep. Martha Stewart, four hours of sleep. Now, I'm, not, I'm just saying, these people might be wired a little bit different than us. I'm not saying you need to get on a schedule of I'm going to bed at one o'clock and I'm up at five in the morning. If I did that for a few days, I'd get pretty cranky. I'd get pretty tired. I could do it a few days, but it wouldn't work very well for me. It probably won't work for, for most people. But some people are wired to sleep a lot less. But generally speaking, a person should sleep, as far as adults, somewhere around maybe seven to nine hours. And certainly, again, uh, most of us certainly do that. The Slapo is known for his or her love for too much sleep. And so that's one of the characteristics of the slothful. He loves too much sleep, or she loves too much sleep. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 21, the characteristics of the slothful. Secondly, as we consider him or her today, he or she avoids labor or work. I already talked about this a little bit, but let's look at a Bible verse that talks about this, Proverbs 21 and verse number 25, the desire of the slothful killeth him, for he, for his hands refuse to labor. Goes on and says, he coveth greedieth all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. It says, his hands refuse to labor. So one of the characteristics of the slothful, he doesn't like to work, and he seeks to avoid work. He can hide from work, to try not to work. Um, this is one of the second characteristics described here 
in the book of Proverbs. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 12. Turn to Proverbs chapter 12. Let me say this, the third characteristic of the slothful, he stops short of finishing what he would or would need to do or should do. Um, we see this in Proverbs 12, verse 27. It says, The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of the diligent man is precious. The slothful man refuses, to, refuses not to, take, uh, to roast that which he took in hunting. He'll kill it. So that's exciting. That's fun. But to cut it up, to serve it up, to finish, so to speak, that's not something that the slothful like to do. The slothful, as I was, and I consider myself as one time being quite slothful, I'd like to do things as long as they were easy to do or they were fun or they were exciting at the first, but finishing was not something they like to do. The slothful are known for their starts, but not necessarily for their finishes. You see the slothful man there killing the deer, curing the elk, killing the bear, curing the bird, whatever it might be, go out and hunting, but not roasting it. Well, if he doesn't roast it, it's going to spoil. It's going to roast it, it's going to be wasted. The slothful are known for their half-built structures or half half waste kinds of ideas or half-finished jobs or whatever it might be. Unfinished jobs, not finishing, incompleteness. And I'm saying sometimes you can't complete a task. I can't complete a task. You know, it just doesn't work into our schedule. It doesn't work into this time of life, whatever it might be. But uh, we need to finish those things that make sense to finish. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 20, verse number four. Proverbs chapter 20, connected with that, and along somewhat the same lines as that, again, the slothful man or woman makes reasons, finds reasons for not to work. He or she finds reasons not to work. Here in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, the Bible says, A slugger will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore he shall beg and harvest and have nothing. You know, again, I don't know what the weather is like with this sluggard here, verse number four, but as a sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold, you know, it's probably pretty cold in April or March or May when the farmer goes in the field and, you know, that's plow time. You've got to stir up the soil. You've got to plant the seeds so you have a harvest there in the fall or September or late summer or whatever it might be. But he will not plow. The Bible says, by reason of the cold. You know, the slothful person, five reasons not to plow, not to work, not to do. Turn to Proverbs chapter 22. We need to be careful not to allow our children to become excuse makers or ourselves to become excuse makers for not working because maybe the weather isn't the best or whatever it might be. I'm not saying, again, you go work on a project in the middle of the rain because, it, again, it's easy to do then. I'm just saying, again, don't look for excuses not to do work. Proverbs 22, verse number 13. The Bible says, The slothful man saith, There's a lion in the streets. I shall be slain in the streets. You know, it makes excuses for things that probably would never even happen. There's a lion without you know, I better not go out. There's a line out there. 
yeah, there's probably a line on your continent or maybe somewhere in your community and whatever it might be. It like be someone saying, you know, there's a wolf on the farm. I'm not going to go out and tend to the cattle. I wouldn't be smart. I'm not going to watch over the sheep. There might be a wolf out there. There might be a mountain lion out there, whatever it might be. The staff will worry about things that really aren't there to a large degree. Ecclesiastes 11.4 says, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds will not reap. And you can't be always focused on the weather and say, you know, well, the best time to do this kind of work is when. Well, there's different times when work is easier to do. But sometimes it's needful that we work. The thoughtful man could put together a, a book entitled 101 Reasons for Not Working. Probably could. It's hard. It's hot. It's humid. On and on it goes when it comes to work. The slugger will not plow by reason of the cold. Proverbs 21 and verse number 25 Proverbs 21, the Bible says, The desire of the slothful killeth them, for his hands refuse to labor. Verse 26, He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. And so we see another mark of the covetous man. He is greedy. He's greedy. He coveteth greedily all the day long. He dreams of things he dreams of gaining he dreams of having so to speak but it's only desire a desire it's a dream proverbs chapter 14 if you turn there with me the slothful man uh, can come up with again designs ideas maybe whatever it might be when it comes to doing something but he has very little follow-through i mean he desires something but he doesn't go out and and do what needs to be done Proverbs 14, verse number 23. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth to penury. There's uh, profit in labor. The slothful man is more uh, along the lines of talk rather than labor. He greedily desires to have things and gain things as he, again, uh, lazily lives through life. What does this lead to? Again, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 21. I want to look at not only the characteristics of slothful, which we looked at, I want to look at the consequences of being slothful or lazy. Let me say this. First of all, one of the consequences of being slothful and lazy is that of frustration, even depression. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse number 25, the Bible says, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. He coveth greedy all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. The slothful killeth him. Often you see it be people that are slothful and lazy. They also have issues sometimes with depression. And sometimes if a person has depression, it can lead to, again, lots of sleep and that sort of thing. Or if you're sick, again, you need to have lots of sleep. I'm not against that. I'm not saying that's wrong or whatever. But it can lead to frustration. Slothfulness will lead to uh, just coveting greeting all the day long, not having 
uh, but, but still desiring a lack of industry, a lack of diligence can lead to frustration. You can look around and say, why does the rest of the world have all that stuff and I don't have that stuff? Why does Donald Trump have his millions or billions? A lot of times it has to do with their work ethic or, again, their diligence in labor. The consequences of the slothful, there's frustration. Secondly, there's lack of food. And, so, and again, that's a negative thing that accompanies slothfulness. Look at Proverbs 19, verse number 15. Slothfulness casts us into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. And so, again, if we are too slothful or we become slothful, it can lead to lack of food. The idle soul shall suffer hunger. We see here the consequences being frustration, that of lack of food, lack of just the fundamental things of life. Turn to Proverbs chapter 23, verse number 21. Someone that learns to be, in a sense, attached to their bed and attached to sleep or attached to laziness and not working and all that kind of stuff will uh, be a lack of food, but also just a lack of the fundamentals. Notice here in Proverbs 23, verse number 21, it says, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Drowsiness, sleepiness, slothfulness. You'll be wearing rags. I mean, just having just a decent pair of clothes to wear. You may not even have that. The lack of finances. Let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 4. In verse 4, it says, A slugger will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore, shall he beg in harvest, have nothing. It'll lead to a place where you have absolutely nothing. Work is a good thing. It has its rewards financially. Again, for again, an individual to work instead of do nothing is a good thing. You know, when I was growing up there, one of the things that I was maybe taught to do or told to do, or maybe I just liked money, whatever it might be, was, you know, during a snowstorm, you know, that was a good time to make some money. Wasn't that? What are you talking about? Go over and find someone that wants a show snuggled and get paid to do it. That's something that I did do growing up. I'm not saying I did a lot, and Kevin could tell how many times we did it, but if we wanted some extra money, all we'd have to do with a snowstorm is just knock on the neighbor's door, or knock on another neighbor's door, and say, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll, do, I'll, cl I'll clear this sidewalk of yours. I'll do your driveway. And uh, how much would you pay me? And maybe they'd say $10 or $20. And you'd say, well, I'd say, well, you'd have to pay me more than that to do that much work. Well, some people that might be, but back then it was like pretty much whatever they said was what I was going to do it for. And I'm not saying I did a lot of snow shoveling back then. If my back was good today and it's not as good as it could be, I'm thankful for what I have. Um, you know, snow shoveling is pretty lucrative when it comes to, to work. Growing up, shoveling, mowing, whatever it might be, or uh, going gopher trapping just for a few, few dollars and cents. Uh, again, going out and collecting this and that and the other thing and making some cash, so to speak. Uh, those were some things I did. But again, I just say in, in general, 
again, it mentions here not working when you have opportunity to work and you're going to have nothing in the end. Verse number four there again, the slugger will not plow by reason of the cold, therefore he shall beg in harvest and have nothing. You know, some Americans don't have much because they just aren't willing to work or they don't want to work or they're too good for the work, so to speak. There are jobs they say today that Americans just won't take you know, to some degree. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm not saying it's true. There's always an American, I think, in general, that'll take a job. But there's harder work that people have a hard work doing. You know, you see, even in our local communities, CNA work. How many people want to do CNA work today? Take special people to do CNA work. Not everybody can do that. That's working with peoples and personal issues that maybe those people would have in a nursing home and uh, being willing to lift someone or touch someone or uh, be doing something with someone and that's not sometimes easy work. I mean I think of you know I've heard that more and more in the trades like even here in Valley City there's there's people that are always willing to hire. TNT would hire a, a plumber today if they could I believe and again I'm not promoting TNT I believe any, any of these companies locally would, would, would hire a plumber today here in Valley City if there was someone that's willing to work and work hard and work jobs that really aren't too fun. Working in the plumbing trade isn't necessarily too much fun. It is when you're working on new construction, but uh, clearing drains and all those kind of things isn't the easiest to work. There's work sometimes that's stressful that people don't want to do, and I get that, but again... Again, the slothful man may be behind on his bills. He may be stressed out financially, and he may actually have to beg and harvest. He should have to beg. Shouldn't be just given a free ride. Again, as we think about work, again, let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 10. There's some consequences to being slothful, and they're not good. And, and having nothing or having little or having... Lack, so to speak, is not a good thing. And so that's why God would have us to work. Love not sleep, the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 5. The Bible says, He that gathereth in, in summer is a wise son. But he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causes shame. And that, and I, I'm sure it's not saying, he, you know, he, he goes to sleep. Everybody's got to sleep sometimes. But I, I think that it's pointing out that he is sleeping too much or not doing what he could do in a harvest there. He that sleepeth in harvest is the son that causes same. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son. It's wise to work when you can work. That's why, again, a lot of people will do their work when they're younger rather than when they're older because it's easier to do work when you're younger than when you're older. It's easy to work 50, 60, 40, whatever many hours a week it is when you're younger than when you're older. Diligence is good. Slothfulness is shameful and dishonorable. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Those are maybe strong words, and I get that, and I understand that, again, when it comes to, again, work, some people say, you know, you, you know, there's people that are addicted to work, and I'm not saying that you should be addicted to work, and there's some people that don't like work at all. Work is like almost a swear word to them. Proverbs chapter 25, verse number 21 but work is something that we all should be involved with. It mentions here in, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 25, verse number 21, it says, 
His Lord said unto Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so this guy was given some talents. It mentions that. And I didn't read about that. But he given some talents. And he was told to do something with those talents. And do something with those things that he had. And he did something with them. He was faithful with them. He was commended for those things. And it says, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But notice a different servant. Now, servants are to serve. Servants are to work. Servants are involved in labor. They're to do the will of the master. They're to do the work of the master. The first one there we see in the Bible being praised. Look at verse number 26, though. The Bible says, let me read verse number 25 also. It says, And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth, and here thou hast, it is thine. And the Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not. Thou oughtest therefore to have put that money to the exchangers, and then at my coming that I should have mine with usury. Again, I'm not going to go into great details here, but you see another servant given some talents, monies. Again, he was to take that money and turn it over to at least someone where he could get some interest, some usury. Verse number 21. So again, these talents, I believe, deal with money. And it says in verse number 28, Take thou the talent from him and give it to him that hath ten talents. And it goes on and says a number of things there. But again, what I want you to see there in the Bible is one is a good and faithful servant. That's what I'd want to be called. And one is called a wicked and slothful servant. That's another one that's called. Idleness can be a curse. Slothfulness can be a curse. Slothfulness is not good. What is the cure for slothfulness? Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter, what's the cure for slothfulness? If I was born slothful, you were born slothful, all people in general are born slothful. Slothfulness is, again, part of our nature. To be lazy is part of our nature. Uh, what is the cure for slothfulness? Is simply to get to work, to do what you can with your hands. Proverbs chapter 10, verse number four, it says, He that becometh poor dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in the harvest is a son that causes shame. And so we see in the Bible there, you become a poor that deals with a slack hand. So we don't want to be poor. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with being poor in a sense. I mean, because the Lord was poor, and there's certainly, again, others in this world that are poor, that are rich in heaven. But it mentions that diligent maketh rich. There's satisfaction also with work. There's reward when it comes to work. There's recognition a lot of times when it comes to work. And we are to work. Let's turn to John chapter 4. Jesus worked. Jesus worked hard. He's certainly the greatest example of diligence and the balance of both work and living. Again, as, as he lived his life amongst the apostles there, and uh, in John chapter 4, verse number, sorry, yeah, John chapter 4, verse number 34, the Bible says this about Jesus, as Jesus saith unto my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not that are yet four months and then cometh ha harvest. 
Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look upon the fields, for they are white already at harvest. It goes on and talks about the harvest, the need to sow, and the need for laborers, and those sorts of things. And you find in this chapter, Jesus being diligent in ministry work, diligent in, I believe, being a carpenter's son, diligence in work in general. And so again, when it comes to a choice between laziness or doing something, we should seek to be industrious. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to close with these verses in Proverbs chapter 6 here tonight as we consider some things about work and slothfulness. The scope of slothfulness is wide. Again, when we think about the slothful, they love too much sleep. They avoid work. They stop uh, short of finishing what is needful to do. They make excuses or give reasons for not doing what could be done. And uh, we find them in the places where they could be, where they idle, where they could be doing work. Again, when there's a harvest, there's a time to work, they're not working. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 7. Let's, let's go back to verse number 6. And I just want to start there. Uh, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, have, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, Provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long will thou sleep, O slug? How, uh, when will they arise out of sleep? Leave a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. The Bible says, go to the ant and consider her ways. Why go to the ant? Because the ant has initiative. And you'll see here, even in our parking lot, all the time, every summer, we'll have ants creeping, crawling around the parking lot. And we'll see them bringing, carrying things from place to place. And you wonder, hey, why is that ant doing that? The Bible says he has no, ant, he has no guide, no overseer or ruler, yet he does it. God has put in that ant to work. And why does he work? Well, look at verse number eight. It says, he provideth her meat in the summer, and gather her food in the harvest to benefit them and to benefit those that certainly live within that, you know, ant mound or whatever you call it. And uh, how does he do this? Well, it tells us he does this through foresight. He provideth his meat in the summer and gathers his food in the harvest. He's working there in the summer so they might have a harvest to harvest. And so the Bible would teach us to work using foresight, work being active, work being industrious. These are some things the Bible would have us to be. And so let's close in prayer as we consider some thoughts on the scope of slothfulness. There's a lot we talked about here tonight, but again, we, we should be careful not to be slothful. Be not slothful, it says there in the book of Hebrews. Let's go ahead and close as we consider the word of God here tonight. Here, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you have one, and uh, begin by uh, turning to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, uh, again, this Sunday, we're going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I want to also uh, define that resurrection as it truly is in the Scripture. It is the first resurrection. And uh, so we're going to consider some thoughts on the fulfillment of the first resurrection here.
today. The first resurrection, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to consider some thoughts on that here this morning. I want to begin here with this passage here. Again, the uh, whole chapter deals with the resurrection, the gospel message. But uh, we'll begin here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's go ahead and pick up in verse number 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that are slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward they that are at Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall put down all rule and all authority and power. I'd like us to pray again here this morning as we consider some thoughts on the first resurrection. Let's go ahead and pray as we begin this message. Father, thank you again for your word here today. Thank you again for the scriptures that talks about uh, the, the first resurrection. We see the details of it. We see prophecies concerning it. Uh, much of the Bible is centered around this thing called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to uh, believe in it and, Father, not to doubt it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know, for some, Easter is about Easter bonnets and Easter lilies and Easter flowers and Easter dresses. And uh, someone might say, well, why don't you call your service Easter Sunday or whatever it might be, something along that lines, as uh, someone call it. Again, there's many different reasons for that. But again, one of the reasons for that is because of the, the uh, history of Easter. I'm not going to go into the history of Easter, but honestly, it's pagan. You can look it up. You can read about it. You can hear about it. You can have even pagans explain it. You can go on YouTube and, and, and type in the word, the, the word E-O-S-T-R-E, and you'll find that it is a, it is a pagan uh, holiday and pagan in origin. Now, there's a lot of thoughts about it that we don't necessarily know because uh, in, in times past, people didn't write down a whole lot, okay? They didn't write a whole lot, so there's all the uh, oral traditions and things along that line to talk about its beginnings and all that kind of stuff, but it was centered around a pagan goddess, a goddess of spring and fertility. And, uh, you know, that's why, again, uh, one of the things that often uh, represents fertility is hares or bunny rabbits. Um, in the spring, they have lots of bunnies and stuff like that. And so, again, that's one of the things that centers around it. And then, again, as you think about, again, the celebration, you also see a normally white-type dresses usually are used and worn at that time. And you say, well, white the white dresses? Well, this 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 pagan goddess wore a white Easter dress and it was centered around the equinox, which is uh, the spring equinox, which is, I think it's March 20th or 21st. And uh, so again, why don't we call it Easter? Because we're not really looking to celebrate Easter. We're here to talk about the resurrection, the first resurrection, the most important resurrection. The first resurrection uh, took place historically when Christ rose from the dead. That's when it took place. Well, let's turn back to Job. Uh, it was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Now, if something's prophesied about in the Old Testament, for the Bible to be true, 
it must needs be fulfilled now or in the future, right? Uh, again, we're looking at the word of God as being true from cover to cover as far as the, the truths of the Bible and the doctrines of the Bible being true. And so if the Bible talks about uh, the resurrection or a resurrection, you would think uh, would be explained somewhat in the Old Testament. So going to go look at a few passages in the Old Testament. Begin with uh, Job chapter 19 and uh, verse number 25. Job 19, verse number 25. Job speaks of a resurrection here in this passage. Verse number 25, it says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. So whoever Job's Redeemer was, he knew he would stand upon the earth in the latter days. And it says, And though after my my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about him dying in the deterioration of his body, and yet he would say he would be alive to see God. Job believed in a resurrection. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. Someone says, well, why do you believe in a resurrection? Because the Bible speaks of it not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. These are the verses that are in the Old Testament. There's actually uh, three passages, actually a fourth passage we consider. Uh, maybe there's some others that maybe are more obscure, that are more uh, symbolic, that sort of thing. But uh, Psalm chapter 16 and verse number 8 through 11 a Psalm of David uh, here also talks about a life after death. Verse number eight, it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be, be, be removed. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My spirit also shall rest in hope for thou will not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we know Dave was looking forward to a future of being alive after he died. He says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. He knew that he would not be left in the grave as far as himself, and neither would the holy one who, again, here is a prophecy concerning Jesus, see corruption. Return to Isaiah chapter uh, 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Again, the, these introductory verses are given to us, I believe, to show us that the Old Testament spoke of life after death and people living after dying, and the Holy One not seeing corruption as far as his body is concerned. And David, again, going on to be with the Lord where he was. Isaiah chapter 29, and uh, sorry, Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, verse number 19. It says, the dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and seek ye that dwell in the dust. For they do is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out her dead. So dead bodies shall rise, and his dead body, Isaiah's dead body, would arise. 
goes on and says in 20, it says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. There's a lot of prophetic elements to these few verses, but I want you to just notice these words in verse 19, the dead man shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. The Bible speaks of a resurrection. Clearly speaks of a resurrection. And yet people say, well, is it, well would Jesus live after he had died? Well, back to our text there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just want to take you back here quickly before we look at the first resurrection in somewhat action. Again, we don't see the first resurrection with the eye of, of sight, like someone saw it, so to speak, like Jesus all of a sudden, again, was dead and he came to life. But uh, I want us to notice here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says that Jesus would be the first fruits or the first part of this resurrection. Verse 20, it says, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruit is something that's produced first and was given to God as a sacrifice in the Old Testament. The first fruit of the corn, first fruit of the wheat, the first fruit of harvest. It means that there were other fruit that would follow. Let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. As we think about this subject of first fruit and Jesus being the first fruit of the resurrection, that means he would be on the front end, the first of others that would follow in this same general pattern. Uh, Leviticus 23, the first fruits would come there as the end of harvest would come. And uh, the Bible talks about, again, first fruits and again, how... Even in the Old Testament, there was an emphasis on first fruits. Uh, Leviticus 23, verse number 10, it says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, shall you reap the harvest thereof, then shall you bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. They shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you have, when you wave the sheaf and he, lamb without blemish for the first fruit, uh, sorry, for the first year, for the burnt offering to the Lord and the meal offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor and the drink offering thereof shall be of wine and the fourth part of him. And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor uh, green ears until the selfsame day when you are brought an offering unto the Lord. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in your dwellings. And so you see here back in Leviticus, and again, this was again something that the Jews or the Israelites were to be involved with. They were to take a sheaf and in verse number 11, they were to wave it before the Lord. They were to take a first fruit of their harvest, and wave it before the Lord. Now, as we think about the first resurrection, let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. It was a special day. 
It was a special day. It was a special event. And again, we'll see the details of that event in details in the gospel record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John give all record of this. But we see what I see as the first of the first of these events taking place here in Matthew chapter 28 is we see the first visit after his resurrection. And as we look at this first visit, I want you to notice four different personalities that came or were part of this first visit or this first resurrection. There were, first of all, some women involved, some special Christian women involved. And we'll take note of them first. Let's go ahead and read through this passage. It gives us a lot of uh, thoughts on the resurrection. And again, uh, certainly, I think, helpful in the overall view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, whom which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly, and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee, that you shall see him, though I have told you. And they parted quickly from the sepulcher for fear and great joy. It did run to bring the disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed all the chief police, all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took money and did as they were taught. And this is a saying, it's commonly reported among the Jews until this day. I want to just stop there as we consider some thoughts on the first resurrection. As we consider the first resurrection, I want to consider, first of all, the first women that were involved with seeing Jesus after he died and rose again. We see them by name given here in the Bible. It says in verse number one, it says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to Don, toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to the sepulcher. And so we see, first of all, some women, some special Christian women come to the sepulcher. And as we look at them, I want you to see them as two witnesses. In the mouth of two witnesses shall everything be established, it says in the Old Testament. And they didn't come there to witness, but it says in verse number one, they came there for what purpose? To see or to look. You know, these special ladies came to just come to the tomb to look. 
maybe just to look at the tomb, maybe to hopefully see into the tomb. We don't know why they came there, but it mentions there in the Bible they specifically came to look. And again, I think we should emphasize that as sometimes, you know, when it comes to uh, special events or different events or unique events, some people come to look. You know, I remember that back in 1997 when the flood came to Grand Forks, I went to Grand Forks to see what the flood damage had taken place up there. And we drove through some streets in 1997, and you couldn't believe. You could see watermarks, I mean, on those houses. And this was weeks after it occurred. But you could see watermarks on houses like 18 feet above the ground. I mean, second-story houses, you could see watermarks still on them that were close to the river. And, you know, when it comes to events that happen in a person's life, sometimes we just want to linger and look. You know, a fire takes place, we want to see what's happening. I've seen fires happen here in Valley City, and I might be driving around, and all of a sudden you see some smoke going, and we want to come there and look. You know, we see in the Bible these ladies came to look. And why did they want to look at the tomb? Maybe because it was, you know, maybe the last place or, uh, uh, you know, Memory, maybe they thought that would take place when it came to Jesus. And, and so for, for at least part of the reason they were there, they were, came there to see the sepulcher. They came there to see the place where the Lord laid. But they didn't just come there to look. If you turn over to Mark chapter 16, they came there. Uh, secondly, we see in the Bible, they came there to labor. They came there to, to do some work. Uh, some loving work, some helpful work, some necessary work, if you would. And uh, they came there to labor. It talks about that in Mark chapter 16 and verse number one. Now this, I believe, is actually uh, possibly a second time that they came there because there's some other ladies mentioned here. Again, some people might want to argue about that and that sort of thing, but I just want you to notice here in verse number one, it says, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, uh, the first day of the week, they came onto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And so it mentions not only uh, the Marys that are mentioned there back in Matthew Mary and Mary Magdalene, but also mentions uh, Salome here. And uh, it mentions they came there again for what purpose? Uh, to take sweet spices that they might anoint him. They came to labor. They desired to put perfume upon the dead body of Jesus or upon the, you know, the wrappings of Jesus or whatever you want, might want to call it. I don't want to go into any details there, but they, they came here to perform a last labor of love for Jesus, to anoint the body of Jesus. They came to finish the anointing of Jesus for his burial. Again, the Bible talks about someone, again, the, another Mary there anointing him for his burial and, and doing so there before he died. And she, you see, again, I, I'm sure, again, others were involved with doing some things preparatory for his, for his burial. But you see these ladies also involved with this desire to uh, use sweet spices and anoint him. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, these all passages complement one another. And certainly, again, if you had time and we had time, we could certainly try to uh, put them all together in, in some kind of sequence. John chapter 20, again, in a helpful sequence and also complementary sequence. But they all deal around the subject of the first resurrection. Luke 24, 
Verse number one and two, it says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, when they came unto the sepulcher, bringing spices, which they had prepared, and certain others with them, they found the stone rolled away in the sepulcher, and they entered in, and it goes on, it says a number of different things. But uh, we see there uh, some involved with this desire to anoint Jesus. Now it says, who, who, why didn't he tell us who these are? Well, it says in verse number 10 who they were. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them. These all told these things on the apostle. Now, what do we see as we look at the first resurrection? We see some precious, saved, spiritual Christian women involved with looking and laboring and uh, wanting to be around Jesus after he had died. Let's turn to John chapter 20. This is the other account that gives us an account of what happened there with the first resurrection. John chapter 20, I'm not going to read uh, through the first part of that passage. You can look at that. It talks about Mary Magdalene and, and uh, Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John uh, there too. But let's just pick up at verse number seven. It says, in the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which first came to the sepulcher and saw him and, behold, and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went home again unto their own houses. But I want you to notice this. But Mary stood without the sepulcher. Now we go back to verse number one, which Mary would talk about Mary Magdalene. Verse one. But Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping as she wept, and she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and see two angels in white lightning and the one on the other head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laid. And she say unto the woman, Why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away the Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Just want to stop there. As we look at the women at the sepulcher, as they came to this place where Jesus had rose from the dead from, we see especially one there weeping, Mary Magdalene. In verse 11, it says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. As she wept, she stooped and looked in the sepulcher. We see this lady lingering. And sometimes, again, if you've ever been in a funeral situation, you'll, you'll see some people lingering or waiting or weeping. She's weeping there. And she's weeping because she's wondering about the Lord and where he is. And what truly had happened. And all the things that surround that. This Mary Mangley was the one whom which seven devils were cast out from. If you turn to Mark chapter 16, we find out from the scripture, she is the first woman who saw the Lord after his resurrection. You know, that's a special position if you think about Mary Mangley. Now, the only reason we know that is because of Mark chapter 16, verse number 9. It says, And when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. 
out of whom he had cast out seven devils. So who first saw Jesus after the resurrection? Mary Magdalene did. She loved him much because she was saved out of much. And she was the first one to see the Lord. He and these other ladies were involved with seeking to worship him, to just be by him, to be near him after he had died. They wanted to anoint his body. Jude 22, it says, that some have compassion making a difference. They just simply wanted to serve him even though he was yet dead. At least they thought he would be dead. In identifying these women, we can imagine in many ways it's uh, this, near the same reaction most of us would have to a death. Again, they're lingering and wondering and wanting and all those kind of things. But here at the tomb on that first morning, that first resurrection day, you see the women there. But once you turn back to our text, Matthew chapter 28, it wasn't just the women there. Women were there, and Mary Magdalene had that special place of being the first one to see the Lord after he had risen from the dead. And the Bible makes mention of that. But we also see the angel there. In verse number two, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, Matthew 28, 2, and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers of the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, whom was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. As he has said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. I would stop there, but I want you to see the angel. The day of the first resurrection where Jesus rose from the dead, there was some women that attended that event or were there just after the event, but there was also an angel there. And the Bible describes him as the angel of the Lord in verse number two, descending from heaven. What was his purpose for being there? Well, verse number two, it says he was there to roll the stone away. Verse number two, it says, and behold, there was an earthquake for the angel from the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. What was his purpose? To roll the stone away. You say, why would he want to roll the stone away so they could see what happened to the Lord? You know, some, some people, the, why, did, why, was a, why was this angel involved so he could roll the stone away so they could see that Jesus was God? You see also there, as he rolled that stone away, he also was in a possession where he caused fear and those who were attending the, the stone. It says there in verse number four, it says, in fear of him, the keepers did shake and became his dead men. And so we see in the Bible, the results of the angel coming there, he rolled the stone away, he caused the soldiers to fear and later to flee, as we see there in verse number 11, it says, and when they were going, behold, some of the watch, those would be those people that were guarding the tomb, came to the city to show unto the chief priests all things that were done. 
So these soldiers that were guarding the tomb and that had fainted, again, I think that's what it means, that they became as dead men, had fainted at the tomb, had gone to the city to tell what was done. So he removed the soldiers from this place, at least some of them for sure it mentions there. And he came to deliver a message there. That's what angels are for. They're always there to deliver a message. At the birth of Jesus, they were there for a message. Again, you find there in the book of Daniel, again, another message, a prophetic message. And so there's a message there. In verse number five, the message was quite simple there. Christ was crucified, but yet he's alive. Verse number five, it says, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, whom was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he has said, come and see the place where the Lord laid. He was crucified. Well, they knew that. You can go back to the chapter before, verse number 61. It says, then there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. These two were the last hanging out where Jesus died. But they were also the first. It appears to see Jesus alive. Again, the angel's message was he was crucified. They were both there to see that. And yet, they were first to see him alive. His death provided a sacrifice for sin and the cleansing for sins at the Lamb of God. But there also must be a living Savior. And Psalm 16 makes mention of that, not leaving his soul in hell, neither... Uh, having that, uh, that Holy One seeing corruption. He's alive. He would not be one who would, again, rot, so to speak, as far as a body goes, and all those kind of things that accompany that. Turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Jesus indeed proved himself in many ways to be God easily through a number of different passages we can go to, but John chapter 11 uh, does say this, John 11, verse number 25 and 26. He that loveth is, oops, sorry, that's the wrong verse there, John 12. John 11, uh, 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And, whatsoever, and whosoever, sorry, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? We're talking about the life just continuing on. We think of death as an end. It's only death to the body. It's only death to the body. The person lives on. And Christ being that first fruits of the resurrection would lead the way for people that are living to die, but yet to live again. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. It, it, I, I do believe sometimes it may be a bit confusing, especially to young people, sometimes even to just regular people, how a resurrection could occur. It could, it could occur and had to occur because of Bible prophecy that pointed to it. It can occur and does occur because God is the life giver. Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says in verse number 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Was dead. I am alive forevermore. 
So the angel carried a message there to these women. He's, he's alive. Verse number 17, he is risen. Back in Matthew 28 there. Sorry, I should have told you to keep your marker there. It says, and go quickly and tell his disciple he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you to Galilee. There you shall see him. I have told you. So the angel carried a message. The angel rolled the stone away. The angel dispersed those soldiers to some degree so that they could, so that she could talk to these special women and tell them he's alive. And uh, encourage them to believe it because he promised it. Verse number six, it says, as he said. He's not here. He's risen as he said. The problem is the disciples didn't remember what he said or didn't uh, recollect what he said or didn't uh, totally understand what he said. But let's turn back to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said he would die and he would live again. Matthew 20, Matthew, sorry, 50. Matthew 12, sorry, Matthew 12, verse number 40. A special sign, a special, a truly special sign will be given to the world and to the Jews that sought after signs to show that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. Matthew 12, verse number 40, it says, As Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. He would die, but he would rise again. There would be this three days before he would rise again. And so he mentioned that uh, to these folks there who were seeking aside, the Pharisees. You go back to verse number 38, it says, And the certain of the scribes and Pharisees say, answered, saying, Master, we should see a sign from thee. And he says, You know, three days, three nights. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse number 21. So the expectation should be there will be a three-day, three-night time where Jesus would be dead and then would be given life or would have life uh, brought into him again and he would be alive forevermore, as it mentions there in Revelation 1. Um, Matthew 16, verse 21. And from that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up the third day. So you see there mentions he would arise and begin to teach this to them. Matthew 17, verse number 21. This is not something that he didn't teach them that he would arise. They just didn't really take it in somehow. They didn't believe it or didn't want to receive it. Who knows? Sometimes, again, it's sometimes when you talk to someone, they just really aren't listening. Matthew chapter 17, verse number 21, it says, Howbeit this kind goeth not out by prayer and, and fasting. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said, The Son of Man shall be betrayed to the hands of men. They shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised. And they were exceeding sorry. So they must have thought at least about this. They kill him. They must have got the kill him stuff. But he mentions he'd be raised again. Same thing you find in Matthew chapter 20, verse number 19. The Bible says, And shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, to crucify him. The third day he shall rise again. And again, there's Matthew 26, 31, and John 2, 19, and John 10, 17, and 
and uh, certainly some other verses that deal with this, this thought, he would rise as he had said. So the angels say he just kept his promise. You know, someone, sometimes you look at the resurrection, you think it's, it's such a, a special event. It is a special event, but it's only God keeping his promise that he would indeed rise from the dead. If you turn back to our text there in Matthew 28, we find again this angel not only tell him that he's alive, but also encourage them to see for yourself that he is indeed alive. Because he's just not in the tomb. Verse number six, it says, he's not here, he's risen. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. The Bible describes it more in those other accounts uh, as far as how they saw it, but it says, come see the place where the Lord lay. And so they could see proof that he's not here. And so again, you say, why did they want to show proof? Well, let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, because obviously it, it seems like with a lot of people, it's easier to see and believe than just to hear and to believe. Again, the report that these women brought back to disciples, they, they didn't really believe it. They had to see for themselves. John chapter 20, verse number 31, the Bible says, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So we, we, are, we are to believe the account of the resurrection and things pertaining to the kingdom of God and things of God based on others' experience in. The angels, again, encourage these ladies to believe it because they could go into the, the tomb and see that, you know, he's not here. But they also could see a folded napkin if they wanted to, and they could see some grave clothes if they wanted to, which you see in John chapter 20, Peter and, and John saw. And so we see the angels carry the message. He's died. He's alive. You can go ahead and see for yourself. Come here. See where the Lord lay. Uh, turn back to Matthew 28. And, and now, because you've seen all this and been a part of this, uh, go tell the disciples about what you've seen. Verse number 7 says, Go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before thee into Galilee. There shall you see him, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. It had run to the disciples uh, and, and to bring the disciples word. You see, again, these ladies respond to this message of the angel. They obeyed the Lord. They went and they uh, uh, went back to where they were supposed to. It mentions they went quickly. And it mentions their reaction again to these things. They had fear and great joy. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to, to be a part of that experience? There, there would be fear there. I mean, the, the Lord's alive. And what, what's going to be next? And what's going to be happening and why is all this happening there would be fear there and also great joy that he indeed is alive christ conquered death they would be glad for this excited about this a wonderful glorious message these women were to bring to the disciples he's alive and yet you see there that's not all that took place on that first resurrection day there's also the appearance of the savior Verse number nine, it mentions, and as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. 
Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren and that they go into Galilee, and there shall you see me. Now, I just want to mention this, is this. This witness of the resurrection now has four main figures involved with it. Jesus himself, it has the angel involved, it has these two ladies involved. And you find here in the Bible that as these ladies go back to tell the disciples about Jesus, you see Jesus meet them along the way and he says, all hail, simply all hail. And uh, again, I'm, you say, did they recognize him immediately? It says, and they came and held, his, held him by his feet and worshiped him. They recognized him as Savior. They recognized him as Lord. They recognized him as the living Savior, the glorified Savior. They adored him. They worshiped him. The Bible said they touched him. They held him by the feet. So they definitely knew the Lord had arisen. They had gone to the grave. He was not there. Now they see him on the way back to the disciples. And yet the Bible says they were still afraid. It says, then said Jesus, be not afraid. Get rid of that fear. And go tell the brethren about this. So there's an assurance given to the Lord, be not afraid. And he gave them comfort and confirmation that he truly was alive and and now they had not only seen the, the tomb, the empty tomb, but now they had met the Lord along the way. But I want you to notice a, a fourth persons or personalities that were there at the resurrection. And these are the false accusers. And again, I just want to read through this. Verse number 11, it says, and these are the soldiers or the guards that kept the body of Jesus. I just want to read the first verse and then I'm going to back into the chapter before that talks about this. And when they were assembled with the elders and took counsel, they gave, or sorry, verse 11, I should be reading. It says, and now when they were going, some of the watch came into the city and showed on the priests all the things that were done. Now backing up into verse number, uh, chapter 27, it says this, now the next day found the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees, came together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that deceiver said, well, he was yet alive. After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher made sure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last heir should be worse than the first. Pilate saith unto him, Ye have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting the watch. And so I just bring you back to the chapter before, just help you to see that there were these watchmen, the, these persons to guard the tomb. And of course, you know that. But they, they were at the tomb and they fled from the tomb and they fainted at the tomb. And uh, it mentions there in verse number 11, it says they came back to the city to show the chief priests, all the things that were done. And so they told what had happened there. I would believe they told them what truly had happened there. Jesus' body's gone. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. We fainted. That would be the report they gave. Verse 12, it says, And, and when they were assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them Large money unto the soldiers, saying, uh, saying, Say ye, 
His disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ear, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So you have the true account of what had happened, yet you find again a fictitious and false story created. The resurrection, it didn't happen. The disciples stole away the body. And there are people today that believe that report today. You say, why do they believe that report today? Because it's one that's been taught since basically right after the resurrection. The devil had to get involved with the resurrection. Let's turn to John chapter 8, verse 44. You find people today that tell you the resurrection didn't occur. They're part of the devil's lie, the devil's crowd. Again, the religious crowd believed in the resurrection so much that they tried to secure uh, the burial place of Jesus. And so we find in John chapter 8, verse number 44, the Bible says, Ye of your father, the devil, the lust of your father you would do. He was a murderer from the beginning and bow not into truth because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. And so who's the father of lies? Well, the devil is. And so they would create a false narrative. Uh, again, they, they created this false narrative because they would be in trouble. Uh, for not keeping the body of Jesus. And so the narrative they would spin as his disciples came by night and stole him away. You know, there's so many narratives about the first resurrection, like it didn't occur, it never happened. They just stole the body away. That was the first lie. You know, you can hear about other lies. You can look up these lies if you want to on the internet if you want to sometime, but the swoon theory... You know what the swoon theory is? Have you ever heard that one? I'm sure most of you have. That means that Jesus went in the tomb and he was, you know, not truly dead yet. And so he wasn't really dead yet. So, you know, the coolness of the tomb and all that kind of stuff, he woke up, you know, and that's how he's alive. Have you ever heard that one? Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, it's, it's a terrible lie, but it's another lie. There's also the wrong tomb theory. You know, they went to another tomb. And that was empty already. So, I mean, um, you know, the disciples, they went there, the soldiers, you know, it's all the wrong tomb, you know, all that sort of thing. And I, 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 go out, I go out there to mention those because there's always going to be lies about the resurrection. Like it didn't occur. Now, let me just say this. If God could give us life, could he give the Son of God life? Could he give us eternal life? See, this world is full of life. It's actually very, you think about death, death comes here and there. Like death to a plant. I mean, a plant will literally die and go in the ground. Yes, I get that, but there are plants that die and then they come back in the spring and you see the bulbs of the plant come back and you see, again, a living again and, and life after life. And there's a pattern. If you look at creation, there's life after life. I mean, you think of a seed plant. Again, the seed is planted in the ground and it, in a sense, is buried there, just like Jesus, again, is buried there. And then life comes from the plant in the spring and through the harvest. 
Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you understand that there's a pattern if we believe that life comes from God, that for the resurrection occur, you know, we can talk about it as being a a special event, a powerful event, a supernatural event. I get all that. But it really isn't that surprising that the one who said, let there be life, lived. And lives forevermore. And it's the first fruits of those that live after death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20 says, But now when Christ has risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept, for since by man come death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so we're all going to die. A dead body is going to die. Our bodies will die. So even Christ shall all be made alive, but every one in his own order, the Christ, the first fruits afterward, they that are at his coming, then come at the end. But I just want to touch here briefly and finally on the Bible mentions an afterward they it is coming. When will we have our part in the resurrection? At the coming of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians, let's turn there. First Thessalonians chapter 4. When will we partake in a resurrection? When will dead bodies be given life? Will it be immediately after, uh, again, after death and that sort of thing? Uh, or, or is what is the pattern? First Thessalonians chapter four, verse number thirteen. As far as getting that new body, when will the dead bodies get that new body? Just like Jesus was given a glorified body, uh, how how and when will we get our new bodies? I'm not saying we don't have life after this life, but I'm saying when will that body be given that life? First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, verse number thirteen. It says, "At his coming," it says. But I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so them that sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that they which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them that are asleep, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and they which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The first fruits is Christ's resurrection. Here we see more of the first fruits of the harvest of the first fruits. When Jesus will call Christians and their bodies to be resurrected, to be with him in the air, to ever be with the Lord. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. Now that leaves each person a choice. It leaves you a choice. It leaves me a choice. We can believe the women. We can believe the disciples. We can believe the angel. We can believe Jesus. Or we can believe the soldiers. Romans chapter 10, verse number 9, it says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
How does one get saved? By believing, the Bible says, in the heart that God raised him from the dead. We see hope in the resurrection. We see help in the resurrection. We see that Jesus wanted Mary Magdalene to find joy in the resurrection, not just fear, but for joy. There, if you turn back to our text here in Matthew chapter 28, uh, who was first to see Jesus alive after his resurrection? Mary Magdalene was. Who was last, in a sense, to see him along with Mary at the cross? The Bible mentions them there. It mentions in, uh, after they uh, uh, dealt with his body, verse number 59, it says, And when Joseph had taken the body, wrapped it in clean linen, laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed, and there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary over against the sepulcher. And it goes on to talk about how they uh, set the stone there. Uh, chapter one, uh, chapter 20, verse number 1, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. We see some events. We see some personalities around the first resurrection. We see Jesus conquer death. We see him proclaim himself alive. We see Mary see him alive. And yet there was a lie that was spinned after that, that he didn't indeed resurrect. We can go on and talk a little bit more about it if you read through the rest of the passage, but we are to bring a message of the resurrection. We need to remind people of the first resurrection. We see the prophecies concerning the first resurrection. We see there's proof in the resurrection in these witnesses. We should believe in the resurrection. Let's close as we consider the word of God. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you and to set you free so that you might have life after death? The Bible teaches that we can have that through belief on him and his work.